Welcome to the Men Are The Prize podcast. This is a safe space for men just like you to be open, vulnerable, and emotional. Every week, a new case study steps out of his comfort zone to discuss masculinity. Using the prize mantra, we discuss important aspects of being a man. This is the who, what, where, when, and how of manhood. Men of the Prize podcast. It's me, it's Harvey, it's your host. How are you? I hope you had a great week. I hope everything you wanted to happen this week happened. But like I've been saying all season, if everything you wanted to happen didn't happen, I hope you handled it well. I hope you didn't let any bad things take you down. Hope you have kept your spirit up, kept your desire up, your emotions didn't keep them bottled in. I hope you were able to open up. And as usual, it's another great guest. We're gonna talk about being a man, talk about our emotions. Before I get into that, here is the way I I am just a man. I am not trained, I can't diagnose, I can't really help you with any problems or anything, but what I can do is have a forum for men to speak. And I think that's an issue for us. We don't talk, we weren't raised to talk. The issues, our struggles, our emotions are locked in this box and eventually it explodes and then whoever's around us is the one who gets it. And we don't want that. That's the toxic masculinity thing and we don't want that. So what I wanted for this podcast is for any man hearing this or seeing this to be comfortable to say, you know what, I'm struggling and I need to talk to somebody and feel comfortable enough to find a friend, mentor, trained professional to listen to you so that your emotions come out in a proper fashion as opposed to a dangerous one. So I hope listening to this gives you the strength and the courage to talk to somebody. And with that, we're going to talk to somebody today. Yes. Our guest is Dr. Terry Wager. Is it Wager? It is Wager, just like a bet. And nice. Good bet. <laughs> I like it. Quick bio and then we can get into it. Dr. Terry Wager is an organizational psychologist and business strategist. He helps entrepreneurs and business owners align their inner and outer game to develop clarity, direction, gain more influence, and make fast, intentional decisions that generate rapid results. Dr. Terry, how are you today? Pretty good. Excellent. I, who wrote that. <laughs> I know it's good. It sounds important. I want to be like that guy when I grow up. So that sounds good. <laughs> so I talk to a lot of men, just regular men going through life, struggling, and I wanted to talk to somebody with a little bit more knowledge about the male psyche and kind of what we're going through. So I'm yeah. glad that I'm able to talk to you about some stuff. So absolutely, I'm glad to be here. Uh, this is awesome what you're doing. I think. Thank more you. Or people need to be able to tune into something like this. And that's the plan. I want to hopefully get out there, get these men comfortable, cry if you want to, do whatever, release in a positive fashion, and we'll be better for it. So that's what I want to talk about. With that, what I typically do is I ask my guests the first question is this. I read an impressive bio. It's clear you've done so much. You've been training. You do a lot. But if I met you on the street, I didn't get a chance to look and read this impressive bio. And I had like 10 seconds for you to tell me about yourself. What would you tell me in about 10 seconds so I can gain, so I could understand who you are? Uh, 10 seconds. Wow, that's short. 
um, we'll, we'll say it like this. Um, I had a terrible life growing up because I listened to my own head too much and I beat myself up. I tore things apart um, and I tore relationships, didn't know how to do it. Um, and I hit the rocks, actually made a bunch of changes and realized that I'm not the only one that does this. Happens a lot with a lot of people, men, women, doesn't really matter. We all tend to beat ourselves up. And so I know I'm over 10 seconds, but um, I ended up getting my own help. And through that process, uh, I really liked the idea of helping. And I didn't like how I got some of the help I got and, and mm -hmm. those things. And I thought I could do it better because, well, I have an ego. And so I thought they did that. I, I made a lot of changes myself. I took some advice that I got from other people and I applied it. Um, and little by little, I changed my life. And um, I actually ended up going to school. Um, I dropped out in the 11th grade, believe it or not. Um, I ended up going back to school about 25, 26 years old. And I graduated from USC with a degree um, in psychology. And then I went on to grad school. And throughout that process, I saw so much of the same things that you're talking about, where we try to logic our way through life and avoid emotion. And I mean, I saw it all over psychology as well as we want to really logic our way through being a human being. And it's an emotional experience. And so um, I found that living emotionally is much more uh, vibrant, much more exciting, much deeper relationships. And so I started really investigating in school how to actually help people to have that kind of life and I brought it into business and so um, when I work with businesses I work with them from the idea of really helping them to have more functional teams more functional interactions with uh, the people on their teams leadership teams and more functional relationships and so that's what I do and okay. Uh, okay all right so what so i'm gonna kind of go through the questions i usually do with you because you know you kind of mentioned how you grew up and it was kind of tough and it kind of shaped the man that you are today and kind of what you do absolutely all right so you've listened you've watched my podcast prize is my favorite word it's got five letters but four of them represent characteristics and we're going to talk about them the first letter in the word prize is p the word is purpose, reason for which something is done or created or for which something exists. So, Dr. Terry, what is your purpose right oh, now? You know, um, that's a great question. Uh, like I mentioned before, um, I had uh, a, a childhood that was really good with my parents, but really bad inside my head. And so I don't want to make any suggestion that I had a bad childhood, but I had a bad way of thinking about things and different events happen in my life. Um, you know, being in resource rooms because I, I have had a learning disability, supposedly, or at least I labeled with that. Um, and having um, moved in a, a certain time of my schooling that they taught phonics in the, in the Midwest in the third grade, and then they taught phonics in the second grade in um, the, the Pacific Northwest where I live now. Um, and so when I changed schools, I ended up having to go back a year. And so these different little things, 
made me feel like I was stupid. And then I looked for evidence that I was stupid. And I didn't know I was doing that. That's just what I was doing. It was like, yep, here's another, here's another. And I just started really focusing on what didn't work in my life and what was going wrong with me. And I started to really hate myself. And um, it came to a head probably about 24, 25 um, with a, a pretty gnarly drinking problem, pretty gnarly um, drugs and alcohol and all that stuff and all of the bad choices that helped me to avoid how bad I felt about myself. And um, when I got that straightened out, what I realized was my life was at the level that I would allow it. And it didn't have to be that way. There's two sides to everything. And I was looking at the negative side. If you believe in negative, I was looking at the fear-based side. I was looking at how things would never work and how I wasn't good enough. I got my cat walking back there. Um, and I just was tore up. And what my purpose turned out to be was doing whatever I could for anybody and everybody that comes across my path to never have to feel that way. And as I've grown and developed, um, learning how to live more faith-based, you know, living in the idea of there is an answer, there is a way, trust the, trust the process and ask for help and talk about the things that are weighing you down and get them out of you. Things always change, things always get better. And we can do better together what we couldn't do alone is, is a huge thing. And so my purpose is to walk alongside the different men, the different women that I work with. And, and I'm probably about 50-50, but um, my heart's with men. I've, I've worked in the prison system for five years um, as a correctional psychologist. Um, I worked in domestic violence uh, groups, helping men learn how to express their emotions so they don't have to act it out. Um, and I've helped many, many, many business owners learn how to actually be a leader instead of a dictator. And, uh, you know, we all fall into dictating when we start to feel powerless and don't know how to actually be empowered and be influential we tend to pick up the hammer i mean you know it's easier okay <laughs> okay so i have a so question that's so that uh, that's a hell of a purpose i it sounds really good now you talked about growing up and good childhood but really it was in your mind i guess in your head can i ask wh where were where were your parents did they see Oh, your yeah. inner struggle. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, that's a great story. Um, and I don't tell it very often, but uh, uh, we're just right there uh, that quick. Um, so I grew up basically in shame over how I felt about myself. And my dad was very, very uh, strict, very firm. Uh, and he was one of these older guys. He was born in 1928. He was old. Um, or, or, well, older than me um more than you uh but he had this way about him that everything he said sounded angry and everything he said sounded so direct and funny enough as i grew up i kind of sound a little bit like him but um i i try to be more jovial so that it doesn't come across that way but i'm pretty direct and i got that from him but i mistaked directness 
for hatred. And because I had that mistake going on in my head, I couldn't check with him because I'm pretty sure he doesn't like me. I'm pretty sure I'm a disappointment. I'm pretty sure that I have not done anything that was good. And so I walked around on eggshells fearing what he thought of me. And I didn't know how to not do that because that's what I trained myself to do. I trained to avoid and, you know, I, I'd get into trouble and then I'd hide stuff and then he'd get mad at me because I'd hide stuff. And, you know, I had a conversation with him the, the night that I graduated from uh, my uh, undergraduate program. And he, he had a couple of drinks too many and I was sober for about seven years at that point, um, but he wasn't. And he had a couple of beers and he was a lightweight at the same time, but he started breaking down crying about how grateful he was that his, that, that his boy, me, got straightened out and got on the right road because he failed me. And what I found out that night, and I'm getting all misty here, what I found out that night was that the same upsetness I had over failing him, he had over failing me, and we never talked about it. And I think that that is so apropos. I think that happens to so many people that we just don't communicate about how bad we feel about whatever's going on. And we don't talk about our emotions. And we just live in this, this is what we do world. So we never really connect. Communication. I've... I also do a podcast with my wife and we talk about relationships and stuff. And obviously communication is important. Communication is key, you know, you know, cliche stuff like that. But it's incredibly obvious hearing you talk about your relationship with your father and how much simpler would life have been if at some point you could have just said, you know, I'm trying my best. I really want to impress you, blah, 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 whatever. I want you to be proud of me, dad. And your dad is like, I am proud of you, blah, 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 whatever. It's amazing. A you simple know, conversation would have changed the whole course of your life, probably. Say that because I remember times where we had those conversations, but there was such disbelief in me wow. that I didn't trust it. And when, when I work with teams, when I work with uh, leadership teams, we, we work from a model called the five dysfunctions. And the base um, is absence of trust. And for me, I go further than absence of trust. What I really think is there is a healthy portion of distrust. <laughs> and so like okay. absence of trust is a zero kind of thing. But I think that people walk around with so much distrust that they're walking around with contempt. They're walking around suspicious and they're walking around knowing that there's a game going on that they're not really sure what it is. And it almost sounds paranoid as I say it. But when you see people, you know, oh, this is a scam. Oh, they're not, they're not really going to follow through. We live in this protective filter looking for the problem. And if we do that, we really uh, annihilate any chance to come together. And one of, one of my colleagues, uh, friends, um, even a mentor a little bit, a guy named Pat Lencioni, talks about uh, the idea that um, politics comes from conflict without trust. But healthy debate 
where we can actually move forward in our business, in our lives, in our relationships, make great decisions, comes from the same conflict with high levels of trust. And when you know somebody's not going to leave, when you know somebody's not going to attack you, you can tell them anything. But I know from my experience, I'm going to get kicked out of my house. I'm going to get yelled at. I'm going to have things taken away. I'm going to have all of these problems. None of these things my dad actually did, but I knew he would because I told me. <laughs> and why would I lie to me? Well, I, it turns out I do. And it turns out that we all lie to ourselves and we all from that protective filter. Uh, I use protective filter as the idea of an ego and, and um, ego, you know, Floyd brought up the ego a long, long time ago. I use it differently. Um, I believe the ego is that thing that protects us. So like our spacesuit, we need it for the journey. However, it constantly creates problems because it also points out all the possibilities of what's wrong. And as it does that, we eliminate great opportunities to connect with other people, to share what's going on with us, to listen to what's going on with them. We just don't do it because we know that there's another thing going on and we sit there and listen to ourselves instead of the other person. And in fact, what I did a lot, and I know this happens because I did it myself, is my dad go, I'm really proud of you. And I'd be like, what he's really saying is he's ashamed of me. And it's like, how do you get that from there? And, and, but I would, I would. And I remember this as a kid, I would be like, yeah, he really thinks I, he doesn't want to hurt my feelings. It was like, how do you just destroy a message like that? And I was very good at it. I could annihilate a message. I remember my mom would go, you're so handsome. I'd be like, why would you lie to me? Uh, I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> Very unhealthy. <laughs> but it was it was because I listened to my own head. Any idea where, it, where did that come from? I, I, think it, I think everybody has a little bit of that. I just had it on steroids. Um, and I fed and watered that fear so much that it grew into, you know, a, a, a human eating thing. And, and really, I don't think that there's anybody that doesn't have that protective filter. We all have it. We all have that, you know, what people call negative self-talk. I think it's just fear talk. It's not that I'm not this or that. It's that I'm afraid they think I'm not. But my head can't actually give me the message fast enough if it goes, no, they might not. So they get rid of they might not. And it goes, they think you're terrible. <laughs> oh, shit. And, and we, we just experience that constantly and if we've closed ourselves out to the faith of people like me people are good people care and we look for the evidence that they don't that voice gets louder and louder and louder and that's the noise of the world and we have no idea that it's happening while it's happening because it's like a virus in our computer system and it just grows and grows and grows until it's infected everything Wow. wow, that's deep. That's I've, I'm kind of hearing myself as I hear you describing it. This is so interesting. Okay, let's continue. The next letter in the word prize, the word is resilience. Resilience is the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties and toughness. I kind of feel like you kind of touched on it with what you were talking about before, but hey, <laughs> can you give us a, give us a situation or something that happened in life Absolutely. where you discovered a kind of resilience that maybe you didn't know that you had. So 
as I've changed throughout the years, one of the things I noticed is that I got the two voices in my head. Now, I don't, I don't know if anybody have, ever has talked about that. I, I know that it, a lot of people have that idea. Um, but the way I think about it is that protective filter talks to us. And then we have a still small voice also, and it's much deeper and it's much more quiet. And the thing that that thing is saying is it's okay. You're okay. Everything's okay. You just need to take the next action. It's all, it's all it's doing. Just take the next action, take the next right action. And we sit there and the next right action is being honest. The re next right action is talking to somebody else, asking for help. The next right action is telling on ourselves when we're wrong. The next right action is some kind of unity move. When we're separated, and that's what that, that piece of us, that, that uh, protective filter wants to separate us so we're always safe, but then we're freaking lonely. <laughs> and so at least nobody's going to hurt us. The other part of us wants to connect and wants to be of service, wants to be a part of a group. And that still small voice, for me, I, I believe that's the God inside of us. And I heard this thing a long, long time ago, and I just, I grabbed onto it, and I've held it ever since um, I stopped drinking. And it's down deep inside every man, woman, and child is a fundamental understanding in God. And I just love that idea. And it doesn't matter what God you have. It doesn't matter what your understanding of God is. For me, I started out with group of drunks, good orderly direction, you know, just a, a, an acronym because I couldn't stand that there might be a deity because I'm pretty sure he didn't like me either. Um, and so I'm, like, I'm in trouble here. He's going to smite me. Um, and, and honestly, that's where a lot of my problem came from is I was afraid that if there was this higher power thing, it didn't like me. Um, I really believe nobody did. And it was because I didn't, but I didn't know it. But when I started to go, okay, maybe I'm wrong about all of this stuff. Maybe I'm wrong and I'm wrong about everything. And now one of the questions I ask some of the people when they start working with me, I was like, what if everything you thought was a lie? Because <laughs> it is, it's a story. We, we, we've created our whole environment, our whole story, everything we believe. So what if it's a lie? Now what? That's shaky ground. And what the, the great thing for me is, and this goes back to the resilience thing, is if everything I know to be true is a lie, then I'm not as bad as I thought. And they might not hate me. And it might not be difficult. And I might have a chance. And I might, and I might, and I might be able to do things different. And so instead of having this belief that it's not going to work out, that things aren't bad, that people don't want to, there's no good people in the world to work for you. All of it's a lie. It's just one thought that we grabbed on. Now, here's, here's a really interesting stat that just blew me away. We have 80,000 random thoughts a day. That's like 2,200 to 3,300 a day. How can all of them be right? And why do we listen to some of them and not others? And for me, the question I had, why do I listen to all those ones that are fear-based? Why do I listen to ones that, that say things don't work? And it's because the protective filter had me. 
And so resilience comes from stopping listening to that loud voice in our head that's talking all about doom. You know, the, the chicken little the sky is falling. We got to stop listening to that. And we got to start tapping into that still small voice inside of us. And that still small voice says, you're okay. You just don't know it because you're listening to the other voice. And it's funny because you said, I don't diagnose anything when you began this. And I, like, I don't either. I diagnose people as human. <laughs> I actually, I actually uh, got in trouble at one point because the, the insurance companies would call me and go, you can't diagnose people with adjustment disorders when I was doing the diagnosing thing. I don't do that anymore, but yeah. um, you can't just do that. And I was like, yes, I can. I have the doctorate. I have the degree that says I can diagnose them with what I think is going on with them. You can't tell me what to do. And I left that whole field for the biggest reason that people were trying to dictate how I should work with somebody. Like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to help them where they're at. I'm going to help them with what I know to work. Yeah. And so resilience really starts with being able to notice that you got a lie machine strapped to your shoulders and it's telling you a bunch of crap constantly. And so um, I have a book. It's called Quit Taking Your Own Bad Advice, How to Stop Overthinking and Start Following the Brilliance of Others. And in this book on page 55, I say that there is the most important question we can ask ourselves in every situation, whether we're thinking we're right or we're thinking we're wrong. The question is, how are we wrong? Because if we think we're right and we walk head headlong into a wall, we're in trouble. We didn't question it. But if we think we're wrong, well, how am I wrong about that? Or if I think that you're going to do something, how am I wrong about that? And it, it comes from, that question comes from the scientific principle or the, the when you're doing scientific research, you want to go from a place of thinking that you're wrong and then testing the hypothesis. And so I grabbed that question and went, okay, I'm going to do that for everything I do in life. Because it, it, unconscious bias says that we already walk in with an idea of things. We walk in an idea with how these people are going to be whoever they are. And then we create the parameters. And then we create it with this self-fulfilling prophecy thing. So if we go, okay, from everything I do, if I walk in and I go, how am I wrong about this? Now I'm not using that bias against me or against anybody else. And so I can open, I can walk in with an open mind. And I can let the thing unfold instead of react to what I thought instead of what's actually happening. And so resilience, that's in a long-winded way, that's really way to put resilience starts with asking yourself, how are you wrong? Because if you think about why we need resilience, it's because we're discouraged, we're feeling invalidated, we're feeling powerless, we're feeling disappointed, we're feeling despairing, crushed <laughs> under whatever's not working. So we need to be resilient. And so how are you wrong about all those emotions? How are you wrong about what you're feeling? Maybe it's not actually like that. You just feel that way for a minute. So talking about, you throw that question out and it feels like it kind of breaks 
everything. It feels like, okay, I thought I knew this, and what if I'm wrong? And everything I thought I knew, every belief, everything just falls to the ground. And like, I just have to start over. That's what it feels like. So what's that experience like? Just kind of have to rebuild everything I thought that I knew. How does does that feel when you do it? Um, It feels kind of like, the way I kind of put it is, it feels like you're living on tectonic plates. And everywhere you walk, the ground is shifting under you. And you never quite get solid ground. Now, that sounds scary. But the fact of the matter is, is you're also not rigid. (laughs) And so a lot of people feel like I got planted. I'm solid. I, I know what I know. Well, yeah, but you're in concrete. You got your feet stuck in concrete. That's why you're solid. You're rigid. You can't move. You can't be flexible. And that's a problem because whenever you decide you're right, there's no arguing with you. If you believe you're wrong, you're in trouble because you can't see another way. And most of the time when we get that rigid, we're not open to other people's opinions. And for me, that that part of the title of my book, Following the Brilliance of Others, is all about believing that when I listen to the other people, when I open my mind to the other people, there's going to be some brilliance in there that even if I don't follow exactly what they say, it's going to influence me to see a different point of view and inform me so I can take another step. And you're in a relationship with your wife. And so I I have Christine, my partner, and I'll be damned if I don't know the answer. And she has to say one sentence and it just messes everything I thought of. Almost every time. And it's not because she's brilliant and I'm stupid. And it's not because she knows and I don't. It's because I have one perspective. And she's got another one. And I, I don't know if anybody who's listening to this or, or, or you've ever played chess, but I'm, I'm a pretty good chess player when I'm off to the side watching somebody else play. Right. That outside perspective is much better than the inside freaking blinder suspe- uh, uh, perspective because we're emotionally involved in it when our blinders are on. And our emotions are triggered, and then we're making decisions based on emotion. We think we thought it through. Okay. Okay. I'm loving this. And we brought chess in. I'm telling you, we're having a great conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I skip the I in the word prize. I save it for the end. The next letter in the word prize is Z. And the word is zeal. I love the word zeal. I like in the word two- zeal. I do too. I think it it sounds important. It feels important. And it's got a great definition. Enthusiastic devotion. What are you enthusiastically devoted to? I am enthusiastically devoted to helping people live the life that they want to live. I do it through business. Um, and I, I don't know if you know what ClickFunnels is or, or funnel hackers or, or that, that community, it's a huge community, but, um, they, they talk about the idea of um, having a following that, I kind of forgot what I was just talking about, that's crazy, but um, they talk about this idea of really getting in and focusing on um, hook story offer 
and you got to have a hook. And for me, that hook is a life worth living. And, oh, I know what I was saying. Health, wealth, and relationships is the three areas of marketing. Now, the reality is, is you got to have some kind of foot in all three, but you only have two feet. So how do you do it? And for me, the, the idea is wealth. If you focus on wealth, you're going to have the money to take care of yourself. And if you focus on wealth, from at least from where I'm coming from, I'm a relational focus. And so focusing on wealth to build relationships and create wealth through relationships, you have all three covered and you don't become a burden on society. And so for me, solving the wealth issue and speaking to the wealth issue helps people in their relationships and in their health. Um, and other people might argue and have a different point of view, but you know, I've, I've done the health thing as, as a psychologist and I've done the relationship as a psychologist and neither of them made me much money. But when I started working with people from a wealth perspective and thinking about relationships, and, and for me, I think relationship more is capital, um, just like money. The more relationships and the deeper and the more um, richer the relationship is, the more brilliance you have to work from. And so one of the things that my partner, Christine, and I talk about a lot is um, we have three words we, we use all the time. It's actually on our logo. And the, the um, words are relationships, resources, and results. Because we firmly believe our, 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 our results come from the resources that we get from the relationships we have. And so for, for us, it really boils down to this idea of being able to be focused on helping people build that life that they really want. And it starts with you. It always starts with you. When, we, when we're working with people, when we're talking about our model, we say well, there's five stops on the bullet train of action. And that's the bullet train. Um, cool. Um, but the five stops are you, your team, sales, leads, and fulfillment. And we talk about this idea. And we talk about when you focus on you and get you straight, you become a beacon where people want to tune into. And when you, you're able to do that, you're able to build the team and you're able to bring people to you and they want to buy what you're selling. And it might not be an actual package or, or, or business kind of thing. They might just want to listen to what you have to say. It's the influence. And so sales for me is influence. And we want to influence people to think in a different way, have a different perspective. And so for me, that, that's that super important piece and the zeal. And, and um, I don't know if you know Tony Robbins is probably because pretty much everybody does. But um, I heard him speak God, years and years and years ago. And he said, enthusiasm means of God. And I had no idea. I had to actually go look, at, look up the word and, and see if he was full of crap because I still believe that sometimes. Like, how am I wrong? Um, and so I looked and I'm like, holy, holy, holy moly. 
It, 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 it does mean that. And so enthusiasm or zeal, because it's a synonym, means of God. And so good orderly direction, if for those of people who don't like the idea of a deity, um, I personally am totally okay with a deity. I like that higher power now. I, I buried the hatchet um, in the ground, not on him. But um, I really uh, firmly believe that when we're tapped in to that purpose that I was talking about before, that you asked me about before, and we tap into the idea of being of service to other people at that level, that's where zeal comes from. When we start really caring about being of service to other people to help them get what they want, we're taken care of. Okay. Okay. All right. I like that. Do you remember the moment, maybe the time, part of your life where you discovered what your zeal was? I do. It just is weird. I was a cook in a restaurant before I ever went to school. I was about 20, 25, 20, uh, 26. Um, I was about a year sober and I was working with this kid who had been working with us in the kitchen for about six months or something like that. And he was talking to me about want, thinking about going to the military, but thinking about just being a cook in a restaurant. And I stopped what I was doing. I mean, I was, I was a broiler cook. I was actually a very good cook, still am. Um, but I stopped in the middle of what I was doing. I was like, why would you give up on yourself to do this? I had lost my chance to do what I wanted to do. Little did I know I was going to go to school and change my life. But at that point, I was resigned to the fact that I was going to be a cook in a restaurant forever and maybe not even go any further than that. But I was like, why would you quit on yourself? You're just starting out. You're 18 years old. This is your first job and you don't even like it. Go and do what you want to do, because this is going to be here. You can always work here. You can always do something like this, but you don't have a chance. And I couldn't go in the military. I have a bleeding issue that, that um, um, I don't clot right. And so I couldn't go to the military, which also made me feel like I'm a defective person when I was a kid. So, you know, right. it, it all goes in, but I'm like, right. don't cheat yourself. And the kid went and he came back like, a couple months later and got a hold of me is you changed my life. And I was like, holy crap, I'm actually good at this. And that's where I started actually thinking about going and, and um, doing something more with my life. And I ended up going and talking to my, uh, my, my head chef at the time about going back to school. And then he goes, go. <laughs> this will always be here. <laughs> he was saying the same thing to me. I, I totally forgot about that. But that's that's when I knew that there was something for me. And that's where that spark lit for me. For sure. That's good. That's good. That's good that there's a moment. Not all of us get that, you know, that light bulb moment. We're like, this is it. This is what you're supposed to do. But when you get it and you recognize it, it's a beautiful thing. So I'm glad that happened for you. Um, the last letter in the word prize, but not in this mantra. Letter is E and the word is expectation. A strong belief that something will happen or be the case in the future. So you deal with businesses and you deal with leadership and groups and large 
companies and such. When you go in to talk to a group of people, what are you expecting them to get out of the program that you and your partner run? What should they leave with after hearing you talk and working with you? Well, number one, when, if it's a first engagement, I talk about the five dysfunctions and, and um, or if, if they brought me in for, for team or hiring, then I talk about my, my um, humble, hungry, smart model. Um, but I know what I'm delivering. And so what I want them to walk away with, what I expect them to walk away with is the idea that wherever they thought they were, they're in a totally different place and they thought they didn't have steps to move forward. And now they have a full plan on how to move forward and they can do it themselves. We help them to, to we give them enough information that they can try it themselves, or we'd love to walk alongside them and, and partner with them to get the results that they're looking for. And so for me, I absolutely know that I can create a functioning communicative team that is able to get into the issues, be able to talk about things from a vulnerable perspective, get all of the information out on the table and make great decisions fast. And I know that when I start working with people, I double, triple their income, not by changing their sales process by, or, or by changing their marketing process or, or, or adding funnels or anything like that that people think that we need to do. It's just helping the people work better together. That is the number one advantage is getting a team to work the right way. It's the number one advantage to your business. So you deal with a lot of groups, a lot of companies, and obviously you're going to deal with leadership, you know, men or women in power. Give me a characteristic of a good leader that people probably wouldn't think of. You know, I, 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 I mentioned it just a second ago, but I'll give you three. It, it's they got to be hungry and they got to be humble and they got to be smart. And when I say smart, I don't mean intellectually. I mean, they have to have an ability to identify and share their emotions in a way that they connect with other people. And if you look at like Howard Schultz, Christine used to work for Starbucks. She worked for Starbucks for 19 years. Um, and she, she stepped out of management, uh, when Howard Schultz left the first time. And then when he came back, she went back into management and then she left again when he stepped down the second time, uh, about a year after he stepped down, uh, and was just, uh, a chair position. She, um, she stepped away from the company again and, and joined me to work in generator. Uh, but that guy knows how to connect with people. Uh, Alan Mulally, uh, I don't know if you know who he is, but he turned Ford around in 2006 to 2014. They were almost bankrupt. They had you know, maybe five months of money left and then they were gonna go under. And he walked into that company and he did the same thing that Howard Schultz did with, with uh, Starbucks. And the idea is, one team, one plan, unity. We're gonna talk about everything that's upsetting you, everything that's upsetting the process, everything that's not working. And we're not gonna stop talking until it's fixed. 
and Al Mulally changed Ford forever. It was the only motor company in 2008 when everything crashed that didn't take money from the government. And before he did Ford, he did Boeing the same thing um, during the, the um, 2001 crisis and nobody was buying planes. They were in trouble. And Alan Mulally came in, one plan, worked really hard, got his team doing what they're doing and turned Boeing around too. And so over and over, when we look at, at the leaders, they have resilience, but it's because they're hung, hungry. They have a drive. They have a desire. They have a zeal, right? And they're humble enough to know they can't do it alone. And so they build teams that are just phenomenally powerful. And you don't have to get the right person. You have to get the person who's uh, able to be vulnerable and honest. But not, and I'm not talking about honest like I didn't take money. I'm talking about how I felt. Being able to admit when you're wrong. Being able to admit when you feel embarrassed or humiliated. Being able to admit when you have hurt feelings. Being able to admit when you feel inferior. That is such a problem for people. And I'd say the top three problems that, that leaders have is they're afraid their business is going to fail, so they don't actually ask for help because they don't want to admit it. And they're embarrassed about where they're at, and they feel inferior. And those three problems are exactly the opposite of humble, hungry, and smart. And they will take a company down. Good. It sounds like to run a good business, you need to treat it like a relationship. Absolutely, 100%. And in fact, to have relationships with others, you have to treat yourself like a relationship. It's one of, one of the keys that I focus on is like, okay, you have a wife. What's your wife's name, Harvey? Carice. Carice. If you grab Carice by the wrists and try to pull her around, She's automatically going to pull back from you, right? If, you know, even if we're just playing and wrestling, the other person starts to wrestle back. We do not like to be controlled. But then what our culture has taught us is we're supposed to control our emotions. So we're supposed to control ourselves, grab ourselves and keep our, you know, coming after me. We, we got that thing. We do the same thing with ourselves. We try to control ourselves. We hold ourselves hostage and try to control our emotions instead of have a relationship with ourselves. What if instead of trying to control our anger, which is a behavior, by the way, it's not an emotion, we actually identified how we felt powerless. How are we feeling inferior? How are we feeling disappointed? How are we feeling jealous? Just identifying the emotions and being honest about it. Now we can sit with ourselves in honesty, in humility, that we felt that way for a minute, maybe two. But this too shall pass. And as long as we don't act on that, we don't act out. And then we can ask for what we need from whoever is in our corner. But people don't do that. People don't identify their emotions. They try to get other people to do what they want so they're happy. 
Okay. Okay. And it's it's a process that I came up with, man, around 2003, when I was working with severely emotionally disturbed kids, I started identifying the emotions that I saw them having, or I felt when they were doing what they were doing, like, wow, you're feeling really powerless. You just threw that desk across the room. Feel real powerful now, right? I'm, you must have felt powerless right before that. Feel inferior. You show me that you're superior. You can throw a desk. I can't throw it that far. I probably could, but you know, I wouldn't. Okay. You feel invalidated, like nobody's listening to you. And these kids, as I'd identify the emotions, would calm down. Freaking bizarre. Like, wow. I watched this person at a freaking, you know, 12.5 on a scale of 10 go down to a nine. Hey, seven, as I identify, you feel really lonely right now. Like nobody listens. Disconnected. Nobody's talking to you. Nobody can hear you. Must be really hard. And, and then the kid would turn right out of his rage, like raging turn and go, I do feel that way. <laughs> Whoa, I'm on to something here. And so I created this list of emotions and, and actually, I have it over here because I have all my stuff next to me all the time. But raw emotions, protective filter emotions, which are the angry ones, and then the balance, still small voice emotions. And when we can identify those emotions, one versus the next, all the way down the list, it's like unpacking all of that pressure we become lighter and lighter and lighter. And as we do, we start to really connect deep inside ourselves. And we start to have a relationship with ourselves. And what's really cool is when we can identify those emotions so easy, when somebody else tells a story, when somebody else talks about whatever's going on with them, we can identify the emotion that they're talking about. And so it becomes an emotional conversation. And in relationships, it just makes us stronger and stronger and, and, and just so connected, so understood, so empowered because people get it. They can identify the emotion. But in business, when we do it, it starts to create confidence and it starts to create a, a knowing that these people can help. And it just increases the ability to do deals. It increases the ability to make sales. It increases your marketing. It increases everything. Because we are emotional beings and we can identify the emotion. And when we connect to somebody and we can recognize on an emotional level, that person gets me, we want to be in their space. The last letter in the word prize, it is I. I don't give it a word because I think it just represents the person. So in this case, I'd be talking to a man. But when you're talking about this program that you do, I feel like these businesses that you kind of come in and you help them succeed and make a lot more money, it feels like if I break it down, if I get really simple, if I simplify it, it feels like you're just making a bunch of good people. <laughs> and then you're putting them together and then a bunch of really good people can do amazing things. Absolutely. So I ask people that in the eye, 
when you take away all the stuff, all the stuff for men, it's, you know, I'm a, I'm a husband, friend, father, teammate, employee. We take all that stuff off. Who are you? I'm going to ask you because obviously what you do for these businesses is a great thing. But when you take away all the titles, all the shackles that are thrown upon us men growing up and every day, who are you when you think about your past, your experiences, your struggles in your head, your successes? Who are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm a child of God. <laughs> you. I'm, I'm just a, a, a silly human being trying to get along in the world. And uh, the more I can remember that, um, and, and I have a, a saying that a big group of people that I hang out with sometimes, uh, rule 62, don't take yourself so seriously. And it actually comes from a, a story um, where people uh, were trying to put a hospital together in 1955 or something. I can't remember exactly the year, but they were put in this hospital to save all the drunks of the world. And they, they were putting this thing together and they had all kinds of people making all kinds of rules about how they were going to do it. And it created infighting in politics and everybody's mad at each other. And this guy actually made a little book about this big, about like that big. And across the front of it said Rule 62. And 62 pages. And inside every page, it had one sentence that don't take yourself so goddamn seriously. And so I remember that I try to live by it and I take myself way too seriously most of the time. Um, but I try to take myself less seriously. Um, and the, the second piece of that is like, uh, and I added this because if you take yourself too seriously, no one else will. Um, and so, and I, I realized that and I put that on the end of that sentence because Nobody took me seriously when I took myself too seriously. But when I joke and I'd be a goofball, people start listening a little bit more. Um, and so I am just a, a goofball trying to get my way in line. And if I can help people have a different perspective on their stuff in their life, then I want to be able to do that for them. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm a goofball. I'm I have a good time. I play. I'm, I make people laugh. It's it's fun. I actually went and got trained uh, in hypnosis as part of my my psychology years and years ago. And when I stopped being a psychologist doing therapy, I was like, I like that hypnosis thing. I think I'll go get trained in stage hypnosis. And so now I do stage hypnosis shows that are just super super funny because. Humor is so important and being able to have good fun and laugh about the power of the mind and how we can get ourselves all locked into ideas that don't exist. I use the whole thing to entertain people, but also teach a very, very strong lesson that if you believe it, you're going to make it happen. I get people like seeing little green men singing on their shoulder and uh, people barking at dogs under their chairs and uh, doing dances and thinking they're pop stars and all kinds of stuff. It's just funny as heck. But um, the the it all goes back to if we can take ourselves a little less seriously and realize that most of what we're telling ourselves isn't true anyway, we can start to really enjoy our relationships knowing that we're we're not that big a deal and we're not that small a deal. We're just a deal. 
we're just human and we can have an awesome time when we walk into a place humility with humility knowing what we're good at and knowing what we need help with and when we can ask for the help we're better together well said we're so much better when we are comfortable depending on somebody or asking for help or yeah. knowing that we don't know it all that's absolutely that's so good that's so good thank you for answering the questions in the prize mantra and that oh, way absolutely this is fun I mean, this is good. I throw a few questions in to end, and I'm going to change them a little bit because of our conversation. Okay, I'll ask you, what are you afraid of that you cannot control? What am I afraid of that I cannot control? You know, uh, I'm, I'm pretty much everything. <laughs> I'm afraid of everything. Um, I, and I'll, I'll put this this way. Um, my ego is afraid of a lot of stuff. I'm not really afraid of a whole lot, but my ego is afraid of a lot of stuff. And it still has the ability to grip me and take me where I don't want to go. Um, you know, watching cars come too close scares the crap out of me. Um, watching my bank account go below a certain point, that scares me a little bit. Watching my credit score goes down, it, it triggers me. Now, it doesn't really grip me, um, but I tell you what gets me the most. At least it did. I haven't done it for a long time, but um, my parents lived on the 20th floor of a building. And you go out the elevator and there's a, there's a fence. And I walk out of the elevator and I get this idea that if I was on the other side of that, I'd be dead. <laughs> <laughs> just freaked me out. Oh, just kind of crap every time. I mean, there was there was times that that when I wasn't necessarily aware that my head was doing that to me, I'd walk off the elevator and I'd shimmy. And I mean, it, it's 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 you know, there's there's enough room. There's there's you know enough for probably three people lined up to be able to walk on that terrace. But I, Jesus, and it just it gripped me. And I realized that my head was really afraid of being on the other side of that railing, not falling. But then the falling comes next. And then it's not even that. It's the hitting the ground that really scared me. But just freaked me out. It's like, man, my head can really get me. <laughs> it knows exactly. You know, it's not about the falling. It's not about the hitting. It's like being on the other side in that last thing, like Wiley Coyote looking at it going, just fall. <laughs> like, where does this come from? But that that was paralyzing to me. It's interesting. It's interesting. Our heads. Oh my goodness. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love that. That's a great. That's a great answer. The other side of that coin is: What are you afraid of that you can control? Um. I'm afraid I tell, uh, I'm telling the truth to people sometimes. Like that. I, I get gripped by the idea that they might get mad at me. And, and that's something that I've dealt with all of my life. But in, in 1995, when I stopped drinking and I got sober um, for the second time, I tried in uh, 1988 and it took for about three years, but then it kind of fell apart. Um, but in 1995, 
one of the things, one of the tenets of, of the program that I belong to, and I mean, it's not all self-help, but uh, what other people think of you is none of your business. Well, it's a great statement, but it doesn't mean I don't care. And it doesn't mean that I don't get scared. And, and like I said, I'm scared of everything to a degree. But that's where courage comes from, is to walk through it and do it anyway. I'm scared to lose money. I'm scared to launch a product. I'm scared to be able to go into a company and have them laugh at me or tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about. And I mean, I've been doing this for over 20 years and I've been changing people's lives and changing people's perspectives. And I still get scared that they're not going to believe me. That's a good one. That's a good answer. I like that. I like but I got to do it. Anyway. Yeah. Got to step out, hope for the best. It's a fear, but you got to, you got to conquer it. I like that. Honesty, it's a it's a beautiful thing, but the response that you may get makes it a scary proposition. I understand what you mean. I'll tell you the truth, but maybe you didn't want to hear it and it may affect our relationship. I know, Absolutely. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Last question, completely off the point, but I think it's interesting. When I did this podcast, is because I wanted to talk to men and we don't talk and whatever. And one thing that I thought, and I may be wrong, now that I'm talking to you, I'm gonna question it. But my thought was that the reason a lot of men don't talk is because we didn't have somebody to talk to, somebody comfortable that we felt comfortable enough to tell our thoughts, our struggles, our issues, whatever. And I got to the point where I was asking a lot of men, do you have, and by the way, I'm going to exclude your wife, your parents, do you have a person in your life right now where if you did something really dumb, really stupid that's just not of your character and you can't even believe you did it but you did it do you have a person that you could pick up the phone call them tell them i just did some really stupid ish i i am excited to be able to say it with zeal that i have about 50. that's amazing but it's because i've cultivated those relationships over the last 25 years and some people I, I haven't talked to maybe five, six years. I could pick up the phone right now and say, I am in trouble. This is what happened. And they'll judge the crap out of me and not condemn me. <laughs> and and, and I, I say that in, uh, in all humor, but the fact of the matter is we're all judgmental, but these people won't condemn me. They'll be like, that was stupid. And I mean, I totally was, but I could tell them anything. And I've built these relationships off of complete honesty of, you know, the different things that I've done in my life, the different things they did in their life, the, the ability to share the emotions and really dig deep into what it means to be a human being alone in the world versus together. And uh, I have a huge number of people that are my closest dear friends that I can call for anything. And it's because I collect them. That's good. That's good. It feels like I hear that. And it feels like when you said cultivate, I almost feel like you treated those friendships like businesses. Absolutely. It feels like, like 
humanity. We're trying to build relationships, but those relationships, you kind of turn, you switch it around. I'm building these friendships like they're business partners or something so that they're there and they're for you. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing. You know, everything kind of circles back and kind of connects at some point. I don't know. I'm forever changed for talking to you, <laughs> Dr. Terry. Awesome. <laughs> my work is done. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it works all the way. <laughs> so thank you so much. Um, how can people reach you? How can a business find you to come in and change their ch change their fare, change their business? Yeah. Um, Generator CC. Dot com. Uh, it makes it really easy. Generatorcoachingconsulting.com, but it's just CC. I made it really easy. Um, that's where you get a hold of me. Uh, you can reach out to me there. You can find me on Facebook, uh, like Generator CC on Facebook, uh, Terry Wager on Facebook. Um, I'm I'm kind of on there. I don't like social media very much, but I have a profile and it it it, it does stuff all the time that I didn't know it was doing. Um, I got some people posting for me and I'm in there enough. Um, you can find me on messenger, Terry wager on messenger, uh, pretty easy to find. All right. Excellent. Thank you so very much for your time, your words. It's beautiful. It's you had, you help businesses and such, but I really feel like everything you talk about is something that I can take on and help myself with. And I oh, think absolutely. Who listen. And I think that's what the best. Absolutely. Part I started working with the person before businesses. And what I found is, it, you know, and, and it's funny because I, I, I make this joke that um, when I started working with kids, the severely emotionally disturbed kids in the in the um, the emotional therapy schools, uh, I left there and I went to the prison system to work with the prisoners. What's up, Tilly? Um, and I work with the prisoners, the, the highly violent offenders as the same kids. And then I started working with the business people and the business people were just healthier versions of these highly aggressive individuals, but they had the same thinking. They have the same way of all or nothing in their businesses. And they had the same fears that would cause them to get in their own way. And they had the same uh, uh, stubbornness when they decided they were right about something. And they had the same desire to grow, but none of them know how to do it. And I was like, oh, it's a human thing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And it's... Am I using my stuff to move me forward or am I using my stuff to throw trash on the track? And so one of the things that Christine and I talk about is we're the bullet train in action and we help you to remove the trash from your track so you can go where you're trying to go. Okay. On that's how you end it. It doesn't even, I'm, I don't even want to talk. I just want to cut it off. But that, <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Terry. Absolutely. And, and thank you, everyone, for watching slash listening to Men of the Prize, the podcast where your inner monologue is revealed. Don't forget, you are men and you are the prize. I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Men Are the Prize podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
And don't forget to follow Harvey on the gram at Men of Zealous Nature or on Twitter at Men Zealous. Have a great week and never forget, you are a man and you are the prize. <laughs>